there's a lot of concern that, well, we don't know exactly the state of these large upper stages, you know, after being in orbit and in radiation environment for so long, maybe they're very brittle, you know, maybe they'll come apart when you grab them. People are going to want to know that we have, or not us really, we're not going after them, but the companies that are doing the active re-removal will have the, you know, the technology to contain the object from doing something bad because they touched it. If the owner of the object has a v an avenue for offloading that liability, I think it creates a new incentive, economic incentive for them to agree or even pay for this transaction. So they may pay us to process their space debris as many recycling you know, outfits get paid to take electronic waste or whatever. There, there may be a market from like the insurance companies and other angle, you know, governments even to, and, and these individual companies that have these liability risks to pay us to take this off their hands. So the, the law has a lot of, it could create incentives. It could create disincentives. I think right now under the current rubric, we can operate the business. We are back with another episode of the Cold Star Project. I'm the host, Jason Kanigan, the founder of this thing, Cold Star Technologies. And I'm here with Gary Kalman, who is the co-founder and CEO of Cislunar Industries out of Denver, Colorado. Thanks for being here, Gary. Yep. Thanks for having me. Appreciate to be here. You bet. So I wanted you on because of uh, something in your LinkedIn profile. It was very specific. You said, uh, we are about, at Cislunar Industries, creating industrial capabilities in Cislunar space that will enable sustainable space exploration and a permanent human presence beyond Earth. So we're going to get into a little bit about what that means, how you define it, and what you have to do <laughs> in order to achieve it. So my sure. first question is, at what point or a number of human beings does a permanent human presence beyond Earth exist? When can we say that's actually a reality? Yeah, you know, I, I was thinking about this, and I mean, I think it's, it's not so much a number or... Uh, you know, I mean, if you think about it, we've had a permanent human presence beyond Earth's atmosphere since the space station's been in orbit, technically. So we're already doing it, but on such a small scale that if, you know, funding stops for the space station, that presence is gone, right? So it's a bit like an outpost in Antarctica or something like that. Um, it's not self-sustaining. And when I think about a permanent human presence beyond Earth, um, you know, we think about colonies and settlements either in free space or on the lunar surface or eventually out into Mars and beyond. And for those to occur, uh, we, we need, really you need enough people there who are doing something that creates value that, that causes them to want to stay there on a permanent basis. And once there's that, that, uh, that critical mass and what that number is, is kind of hard to define, I think, at this stage. Um, but we'll know it when we see it. And you certainly see it in plenty of science fiction. <laughs> mm -hmm. and, and, and the, you know, it's, um, I think uh, it, it really comes down to the economics of the situation and whether there's enough activity happening that would cause somebody to want to be there on a permanent basis. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. to be sense. somewhere on a, on a permanent basis. It's, it's either you have enough money that you can just pay to be there or, um, or you have, some economic activity that's giving you revenue and adding value to the economy that you can produce things to stay there. Okay. So the folks at the Von Mises Institute are going to be very happy to hear about the economics of this is, is important and it's not just going to be grant funded and grant funded and grant funded or something. Uh, and I'm important. hearing also <laughs> something about, um, resources and creating your own resources i think yeah. seems to be an important thing here it's not we're yeah. getting this stuff shipped in all the time to keep this, this effort we're able to do it ourselves okay so let's move on from that then uh, to what 
you, you mentioned this phrase, industrial capabilities. So what, what are those? What do you believe needs to be developed first? Yeah, so, um, you know, you, you, you just mentioned the resources thing, and that kind of underpins the whole development of the industrial capabilities in, in my mind. Uh, and that's really what drew us to the business that we're pursuing right now. But, um, you know, when we think about how do people move in a permanent fashion from one place to another, they need to be able to have the resources there, you know, what they say, in situ or in, in that location uh, to be able to support those people in the economy that, that, that's there. Um, and in order to think about what industrialization has to happen first, you think about what resources need to be created. So when we think about this, this future state, um, I mean, a lot of people are going after water, which makes a lot of sense, right? You, you, the asteroid miners see water as the, you know, the, the and, and lunar miners see water as sort of the oil of space because it, has, uh, it supports human life, it supports um, fuel production, and those things will be, I think, the underpinning of the beginning. Um, but when we were looking at the whole value chain, and you think about building up a, a full economy that's sustaining, you need to have an industrial base to be able to sustain those people, uh, to, to build you know, materials for them to build habitats and, and devices and whatever they need, basically, is gonna need an industrial base, just as you have in any other economic development period throughout human history as we've expanded, we've set up industrial bases where we go. And um, <clears throat> this is gonna be no different in our mind. And so you know, we, we see resources as underpinning it, and then what resources can we acquire in space, and then what industries can we develop to use those resources? So the water is first, I think, but then we see uh, metal as being a key component of that. And that's why we developed Cislinar Industries to sort of go after ways that we can process those metal resources, which to us seemed like an under-focused uh, area um, at the time anyway. Um, and, and so, you know, I think that's how, how it gets started. I don't know if I want to <laughs> a little bit mm -hmm. there, but, but um, yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm very happy to hear about this. And you are, you are I will call you a numbers guy. Uh, you have a, the letters CFA after your name. Take yeah. a moment and explain what that means. Yeah, CFA is a chartered financial analyst. Essentially, for people who aren't in the investments industry, they typically don't know what it is, but it's a postgraduate designation that you get uh, for, it's sort of like a CPA, but it's for analyzing equities and investments and you know, doing financial analysis for, for that sort of uh, sector. So I, have, right. I have in my previous life, I was in, in a finance role and I also was working for an asset manager and I ran portfolios and, and developed strategies and that sort of Right. So I really want folks, listeners to understand that you're approaching this from a business financial viewpoint an economic viewpoint, which yeah, I appreciate exactly. a lot. My background is in business administration and operations management. So I, right. I care about this stuff. It's great to produce capabilities, but if they don't make money, nobody is going to exploit them and do anything about them. And right, right. So yeah, I think that, that is that is one of the uh, sorry that, that is one of the, the differences, I think, from what other investors and people we've spoken with in the industry have, have told us that. You know, our, our approach did not emerge from a technology that we had created and thought was cool. We, we mm -hmm. looked at it from a high-level perspective as to what is needed, as we just discussed, to create this future state. 
and where is the gap and how can we fit into that and create value? So that's, that, that does take that different sort of business approach toward, towards the problem. Right. So water for fuel is important, hydrogen yeah. and that, but metals are also very important too. And not to bring back to earth, uh, anybody who read no. the classic <laughs> asteroid mining 101 knows uh, orbital infrastructure and, and making stuff in space rather than having to kick it up out of the gravity well and put it in an orbit, which is very expensive. Just go get it. And then, use that to produce new things in space. And so let's, let's talk about this space foundry idea that you have, mm -hmm. because you, you're, you're talking about, okay, we, we realized that the economic idea of space is underserved on the metals area. Everybody's rushing towards the water and hydrogen usage. What about the metal? And then what, what capability do you need to create to be able to use it? We were looking at the, the entire value chain of space resources. And we saw that the processing metals was an area that was not really being pursued yet. And you know, we, we were kind of thinking about, okay, there's asteroid miners on one end, they're gonna bring the materials to us um, or somebody. And then there's you know, companies like Made in Space and others that are doing in-space manufacturing and they can use the materials to build things for, for you know, the, this future economy. Um, and so what is needed in the middle, we need somebody who can take those materials that are being produced and process them and turn them into the, the finished goods or input materials for that manufacturing process. And what, what we were, as we looked at this problem, we also became aware of, and I was kind of coming to this whole space sector from a, as, a, as a newbie, but we became aware of space debris as a, a problem as well. And we saw an opportunity there to kind of join these two concepts. And we know we have a problem with space debris. We know as we continue to increase activities in space, space debris is going to become an increasingly a necessary problem to address. Um, and we have this other idea that we want to accelerate the progress towards this, you know, humanity moving beyond Earth. And for that, we need this industrial base. And so maybe we can look at space debris as a possible resource to, to use to put into this idea we had for processing metal. Um, and you asked about the space foundry specifically. So, you know, that that as a possible source of feedstock did kind of inform how we would need to develop this, this space foundry concept. Um, and our idea is that we will go after space debris first and develop this capability with space debris. And then when the asteroid miners are ready to bring materials into Earth, Earth's orbit or cislinar space, we will already have developed the, the technology to be able to process it. We'll be in a good position to do that. Um, and so thinking about space debris as the feedstock for the system, we, we wanted to, we thought, okay, well, what will we need to do to it? We'll need to take it apart. We'll need to sort of make it smaller, melt it down, kind of reformat it so that it can be turned into something that can be used for manufacturing. And if you're thinking about 3D printing or something like that, then, then you know, you might need to be able to make like a wire for wire filament for 3D printing or, I mean, you really wouldn't use powder in space that has, for obvious reasons, there's <laughs> gravity could become an issue with powder floating around, but, um, but, uh, but metal wire is possible. And we could also actually directly manufacture things like trusses and other sort of dumb objects that, that don't have, you know, circuit boards or any of that sort of thing, but do need to be large and could be used to create structures and underpin some of the other technologies that could be you know, more easily boosted up from Earth in the beginning. Um, and to do that, we, we know that we have to melt something down. So we looked at, okay, how are foundries done on Earth? And you have a crucible and, you know, as we talked to people who were, you know, we spent a little bit of time kind of understanding what that looks like on Earth. And you know, those systems need to be maintained a lot. 
right? Mm -hmm. They have those, those surfaces, they get, uh, eventually they get fouled up and, or they could, and, uh, and you need to replace them. And, you know, that's obviously a problem in space unless you've got another factory that's making crucibles and you've got people there who can do it. Uh, but we, we imagined a free-flying robotic platform that would not really be human-tended because it's way too expensive to have a human where it's not necessary. Um, and so we looked at uh, what kind of technologies, and also we have microgravity, so you have another challenge where you're not pouring things into a, a crucible. Mm. Um, so we looked at electromagnetic levitation as the possible answer here. And the idea is that you know, you can, inside. they do this already in the space station, by the way, they do it on a small scale. So this is not totally new technology, um, but you can basically place a metal in inside a magnetic field and it will levitate and the same fields can be used to heat it up and melt it. Hmm. And, and that allows us to create that molten material. And then we imagine using the same basic technologies to, um, to extrude it and sort of manipulate it into a new shape. And that was the, the core concept behind the Space Foundry was this electromagnetic levitation furnace and electromagnetic levitation extrusion system, which would be relatively uh, unique. Okay. And you have put in a proposal to the ISS uh, National Lab. Right. Uh, to, right. to, I don't want to say create this, this technology, prove it, prove it, I guess, right. uh, and right. demonstrate, yeah. demonstrate that you can do it uh, uh, on this scale. So yeah, tell us uh, actually, about that. Actually, we, went, we originally went to the ISS National Lab with the idea to put what we called the Space Foundry Laboratory um, on the outside of the space station. And so we had envisioned like a smaller scale version of this you know, Space Foundry furnace that could process larger balls of metal than they're doing on, in the current furnace you know, for materials research, which are right now they're like eight millimeters in diameter. So we were thinking something maybe the size of a golf ball that could be then extruded into longer objects and we could actually produce something with it. And we proposed this idea. It was, you know, relatively expensive to put this whole thing together and then have it hosted on the outside of the space station on something like the Airbus platform that's going on. Um, and so they came back to us and said, we love the idea of using space debris as a resource and not as just a problem. And we like this sort of approach to, you know, linking that with in-space manufacturing. But can you do something a little smaller that's not so, you know, ambitious for the first project you do in space because we you know we're a startup we have uh we have you know we're just a lot of us are kind of relatively new to the space sector and they want to see that we can actually pull something off for it which makes sense um and so we the team kind of put their heads together and we thought well let's take the whole system break it into its its process parts and see is there one piece of this that we can prove you know some way in, in microgravity that will help to elevate the trl level the readiness of the technology um, and, and, you know, move the project forward and make it less risky to do the full-sized Space Foundry Laboratory. And, and so we came up with this idea um, to use liquid metal. And so most people are familiar with mercury as a liquid metal, um, but it has to it's toxic. You know, you don't want to have that with the astronauts if you don't have to. And it turns out there's another, um, there's another alloy, or there's a metal called gallium, which is kind of liquid if you hold it in your hand. It has a very low melting temperature. It's not toxic, um, and you can mix it with other, other elements like indium, and I think tin is the other one, mm -hmm. and it makes this alloy called gallenstam, which has a melting point of right around freezing. It depends on how you make the ratio. So you can go from minus 11 degrees Celsius up to, I think it's like 55 degrees. So there's different ranges of, of um, you know, temperatures that, depending on, on the mix. 
And our idea is that we can use a liquid metal Galveston to, uh, to show that we can use those electromagnetic fields to not just control it in one spot, which is what they do already, but also kind of stretch it out, make it into a shape, maybe show that we can precisely move its location within the furnace, push it through a die where it's, you know, we have a physical die um, that we can push it through so it makes another shape coming on the other side, and even possibly stretch it out and then lower the temperature in the chamber and freeze it in place to sort of simulate, you know, molten metals cooling off and turning into uh, something that we produce. Interesting. And, yeah, and so and this can be all be done, we think, you know, on a small scale inside a Nanorax uh, module, but we can do it relatively cheaply, um, at order of magnitude cheaper than the other experiment idea. And it sort of satisfies that idea of that need to kind of do it quickly, lower, lower risk. And also what's kind of cool is because we're using this liquid metal, we can even do this on the ground and, and sort of put the metal on a plane and, and play with it with the same magnetic field. So we can do a lot of the testing, you know, without having like parabolic flights or other microgravity simulation environments um, to, to show that the math works around it. Um, and, and we actually we were able to partner with the Colorado School of Mines and their space resources department to, to work on this, as well as um, another guy in, in, uh, in the mechanical engineering department who has a, a lab where he, called M3 Robotics, they, they use um, magnetic fields to control other objects with magnets in them uh, remotely. So it was the perfect blend of skills to do this exact project. We can use his, his, you know, his experience with the, uh, with the algorithms to, to you know, kind of accelerate our progress with this idea. But we just submitted this proposal yesterday. <laughs> if I look tired at all, that's why. <laughs> but uh, it, it, was, um, it was an intense process to get that out the door, but it's in and we'll see what they say. Uh, we should find out hopefully within the next couple months. Right. <laughs> I, I'm curious how much energy this manipulation takes uh, and, and what the power source is for that. Yeah, I mean, so to, to hold, a piece of metal in a certain position in microgravity takes very little energy because we're not fighting the gravitational field. So levitating it is, is just a matter of holding it. It's almost negligible how much energy it takes to hold it in place. Um, to melt down like steel and aluminum on sort of a grander scale, uh, I don't remember the exact numbers for the, for the space foundry laboratory that we have. I, mean, I can tell you that the, the, this experiment that we're doing with the liquid metal we have 500 watts available to us. So we're gonna operate within that envelope and, and figure out a way to make it work. Um, you know, it just might be a matter of scaling the size and whatnot to get that to happen. But when you melt actual metals, it takes quite a bit more power. Mm -hmm. Now by comparison, the electromagnetic levitation furnace that's on the space station right now runs at about 2000 watts. So that's, and that's to melt a, a very small piece of metal pretty quickly. Um, we were gonna operate in a one kilowatt uh, size constraint on the outside of the space station with our space foundry laboratory and you know we doing the math we believe that it, it could be done it's mostly a matter of time not so much you know mm. power at that state you have to get above a certain level but mm -hmm. once you're there to do the industrial level stuff that we had envisioned for the full-scale space foundry we were we, we we scoped out a project for a sort of a free-flying satellite um, kind of a comsat size satellite that would process up to 5,000 kilograms of material a month. And for that, we needed uh, around 30 kilowatts of power. And so we were, you know, you can do that with solar panels, um, mm. but they're okay. big, but you can do it. So that, that kind of gives you a range of, of what yeah, we think. Yeah, it gives me, gives me an idea. My original thing out of college was with the industrial gas turbine generator sets and diesel oh, yeah. power plants up to 
don't know, five megawatts, 20 megawatts, yeah. that kind of thing. So I'm getting a picture here of, is it like solar power and battery or is it a chemical <laughs> engine, right? Where you're converting a, a fuel source into something and, and then it, you know, into electrical. So, yeah. okay. So that, that gives us an idea. You can use large solar panels that will uh, power batteries and, and that will come out and do that. The, some of the manipulation is pretty easy of physical location. The melting down and reshaping takes a little more power, but it's not massive amounts. I'm not hearing like, you know, huge fires of Mordor, you know, kind of thing here where, where, uh, you know, you need a a massive power supply or fuel supply constantly being provided. So it is, it is renewable, which is part of your charter, so to speak. And, uh, and I like that. Okay. So one thing to to keep in mind though, when you talk to people who are in the metals industry on earth, Mm -hmm. First of all, 5,000 kilo, kilograms a month is like nothing. Okay? Mm-hmm. They, they, they're doing, you know, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of tons a month. So it's a totally different scale when you get to an industrial scale like that. Um, and, and the power for, for those, you know, those kind of devices on Earth is obviously proportionally larger. So when I think about uh, like future, longer term future states, if you get onto the surface of the moon or something like that, and you've got, you know, megawatt scale power available from a nuclear plant or whatever, um, it's conceivable that you can scale it up because a lot of it has to do with the more power you put in, the faster and more you can melt. Mm. So it's just kind of a relationship in that way. So, but for for our purposes and for processing space debris, you know, that's a, a fairly decent amount of production. Okay, and I really like that you got Colorado School of Mines in there. I mean, obviously they're they're closer to you than many yeah. other things <laughs> being in Colorado. Uh, Dr. Chris Dreyer is going to be a guest on this show. Um, Good. Yeah, March great. or April or something, and uh, yeah, I had a, a chat with him early on, uh, where it was it was great because that was one of the chats where I noticed like how much I had learned. In that, <laughs> I was like, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't have been able to have this conversation with you, you know, two months ago or something like yeah. that, three months ago. Right. So, so it's yeah, it's a learning process. So I know how you feel about like the <laughs> space thing and having to having to learn. There's so many things. I bet you you never thought you would be learning about chemistry and that, you know. Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. This is Jason Gannigan from Cold Star Tech, and I'm excited to share with you a new offer from Cold Star that we are bringing out to help both space founders and venture capitalists who fund space companies. And it's on two levels. The lower level is a VC who is looking at possibly funding a space company, but they just don't get it. Right? And a lot of tech founders want to come out and create some sort of technical capability, but they do not understand business. And so you'll look and you'll go, where's the customer here? Where's the business model? And they'll go, huh? But I want to make rockets or something, right? And, and it's really cool. Well, that, as we know from the dot-com era, is not a viable business model. And so you bring us in. We've got great technical expertise on the space side. Folks who have done this sort of assessment before, like our technical engineering advisor, Dr. Rick Fleeter, myself in the process engineering field, plenty of other people with brains to look at this problem so that you don't have to blow your brains out trying to figure out how to make this work. And on the company side, it's a benefit for them because we will show them the roadmap to how you're going to get funded, how, how you will want to fund them, what changes to make to get VCs excited about putting money in. And so that's good for you. Right? The second level is at a, a deeper and higher level at the same time. It is for venture capitalists who have uh, given a seed round to a company 
a space company. And that has gone on for a little while, six months, a year, something like that. And it is time, as uh, COVID has made it, to double down or get out. Those are pretty much the choices, right? It's time to invest further in a thing we already know, which seems to be the direction VCs are going in right now. Uh, they don't seem to want to look at new things uh, or, or stop, just kill the project. And so the good news is, in that situation, there's a lot more going on. There's more meat for cold star experts to get in and, and analyze, right? You're going to have processes in place, whether they know it or not. We'll be able to flowchart those and, and maybe accurately document them for the first time so we can get some kind of value chain going in the organization. We'll be able to test whether the leadership is the right group of people or whether you're missing something, the strategic direction, the business model, all this stuff. So. If this sounds interesting to you, reach out to us. You can email me at jason at coldstartech.com or just connect with me and message me on LinkedIn. That's probably the best way to do it. And uh, I am excited to talk to you. The, the kind of transformation that we're able to offer here is beyond anything you'll see out there. And as a VC, this will save you so much time and energy, right? Like if you're a VC and you've got 100 companies to look at, you've got three days a year <laughs> to, to look at each one maybe, right? That's not really good enough, is it? Wouldn't it be better to have uh, experienced, expert space, people who understand space, right? Look at this investment and tell you, here's a grade, right? Here are several grade areas. Is this thing ready to pour gasoline on the fire or is it just going to go up in smoke? This is Jason Kanig from Cold Star Tech. Let's get back to the interview. So I'm curious, let's move on to the legal issues of, of capturing and recycling objects and metal things already in orbit. Uh, how are you going to handle that? Yeah, it's an interesting topic because we actually spent a good chunk of the first I don't know, year or so talking to experts about various things to make sure that it was even possible, both from a physical and from a regulatory standpoint. And the, leg the legality is a bit, you know, it, so for mining resources off of a planetary body, that's kind of been figured out to some extent, especially with the laws in Luxembourg and the United States and other countries that are talking about this. It's sort of cleanly within the rubric of the Outer Space Treaty. When you get to space debris, um, it's a bit trickier. And a lot of people who come to it, you know, without knowing about the rules here, kind of assume it's going to be like salvage. Like, can't you right. just go salvage in a derelict object like you do in the ocean? You know, and, but that law doesn't exist in space. Right. All we really have to operate from is the Outer Space Treaty. And um, it's, I mean, technically, it's, you know, the whoever launches an object into space is responsible for and owns that object until it disintegrates. Mm -hmm. either by and the nation, or the nation that. state that they yeah. belong to as well. Yes, yeah. exactly. So it's, yeah. it's the, and, you know, some, many of those objects that are up there presently are, are owned and were launched by nation states. So mm -hmm. <laughs> a lot of it is you're dealing with nation states. Um, our, but, you know, even though that's the case, uh, and actually, in some ways, because that is the case, the, the idea of us going up and, you know, getting space debris is kind of clear in the end, because we, we, we know that we can't just go grab it, right? It's not free to grab, unless the law changes, or which, this is a treaty, so I don't really expect that to happen unless it's already happened. <laughs> um, so we assume that we are going to have to go and talk to, you know, the government that sponsored the launch originally, as well as the, the if there is a company that owns the object, that, that, that company as well, to get permission. And we'll have to demonstrate that we will, and also we'll have to get permission from our licensing state to 
go do this activity as well. So there's a lot of coordination potentially between you know, multiple nations, um, as well as commercial owners of, of the objects. And we have to be able to demonstrate as well that we can, uh, there's gonna be some new ground broken too, because I, that, no one's really done this sort of transfer of title for mm -hmm. you know, an object that's, that's not functional. There, there have been satellites transferred ownership because the company is purchased or whatever. Um, in, in one instance that I, I know of that, that was uh, told to us by a, an expert in, in space law, I think it was Hong Kong or some, some nation actually did change the registry of an object by the nation state to mm -hmm. another nation state. I just so thought of that been, question. Yeah, yeah. It hasn't been tested, though. So all these things, you know, you could try it and we could do it and probably get no objections from the UN. Uh, but if there's an accident, mm. You know, let's say that, so we also have a Luxembourg company. We have a Denver company and a Luxembourg company. And let's say we were licensed by Luxembourg. You know, they obviously have less capability to pay for damages than the United States, for example. Um, and so if there is an incident, who is the, you know, the, the aggrieved party going to go after? That is an open question. It's a risk that the launching, our launching state would want to take into account mm -hmm. before agreeing to license the activity, right? And some of these objects, you know, there's a lot of concern that, well, we don't know exactly the state of these large upper stages, you know, after being in orbit and in radiation environment for so long, maybe they're very brittle, you know, maybe they'll come apart when you grab them. So as you know, people are going to want to know that we have, or not us really, we're not going after them, but the companies that are doing the act debris removal will have the, you know, the technology to keep contain the object um, in, 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 you know, from doing something bad because they touched it. Right. On the other hand, if, if the owner of the object has a, an avenue for offloading that liability, uh, I think it creates a new incentive, economic incentive, for them to agree or even pay for this transaction. So they may pay us to process their space debris. As mm -hmm. many recycling you know, outfits get paid to take you know, electronic waste or whatever, um, th there may be a market from like the insurance companies and other angle, you know, governments even to... And, and these individual companies that have these liability risks to, you know, pay us to take this off their hands. So the, the law has a lot of, it could create incentives. It could create disincentives. I think right now, um, under the current rubric, we can operate the business. And in theory, there's nothing that would stop us from doing this. We just need agreements from people. Right. Um, I mean, I, I say that like as if it's, you know, super easy, but, you know, <laughs> it'll probably uh, be harder than, than I imagined. The, the first thing that I thought of was you're going to need a, a sped up process to, to yeah. discuss these title transfers. And, and there was mm, at least one more factor involved than I originally had thought after you explained it or as you were explaining. I was like, mm -hmm. oh, yeah, I hadn't thought about that. So. Yeah, it is a little. It is a little more complicated. It's not just buyer and seller, if you will. Right. Uh, right. And and for those interested in the insurance side of space, I uh, recorded an interview with Bob Weirdy in December okay. that hasn't been released yet. Uh, but probably by the time this this comes out, it, it will have been released. So you'll be able cool. to look at that. And he, yeah, Bob explained the the whole insurance field for space and how it works and that. So it was it was very cool. Yeah. Um, Okay, so it is, it is, there's some complexity, but it's not so bad. And for those thinking, as everyone does, including me, when I originally got into it, well, isn't space law just like rooted in maritime law? No, <laughs> it is not the same. Salvage does not work the same way. Uh, and, and the rules need to be figured out. And it's kind of good. Uh, the, the, 
interview I did with Laura Montgomery, who's a space lawyer, uh, we really got into that. It's kind of good that there is that gap or yeah. delay in terms, you know, that, that things are not cut and dried right now because uh, they need some operating time. The operators yeah. need to get up there and, and goof up a little bit to create situations because it's, it's kind of impossible to predict every possible thing that could happen and, right, and right. go, okay, yes, we definitely know what the answer is here. And here are there's the no rules. Way. Yeah. Like, no, <laughs> let them get yeah, out. There's there. a big risk of, of trying to anticipate um, the challenges and, you know, too much and, and, and create regulations up front mm -hmm. that they could stifle, you know, innovation and, and activities that could possibly create solutions. So, yeah, I think you're right. The, the gray area that exists in the Outer Space Treaty is sort of giving a lot of room for things like the laws that the U.S. And, and Luxembourg passed to, you know, legalize asteroid mining, for example, mm -hmm. and the same, by the same token, you know, mining resources on the moon. So um, it's not always agreement from every, all the different parties that, you know, might be involved in those treaties that that should be allowed. But uh, right. it's kind of like, it's not quite as bad as sort of the Uber model of just go and do it and then, mm -hmm. you know, figure out the rules later. But it's a little bit like that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I know, I know I've been told that the, the European space folks definitely want things written down and, and agreed upon a lot more than the American side where, you know, we're more, hey, just <laughs> let it go for a little bit. Let's see what happens. So what do you think that it will take, Gary, to reach a point where uh, in space manufacturing and construction is just a no big thing? You know, we, we do that mm -hmm. now. <laughs> yeah, that's that is like the million dollar question, or or maybe hundred million dollar question. <laughs> I mean, in fact, this is this is a question that's kind of come up with investors and you know ad advisors and mentors that we have a lot as well. You get a bunch of space people together in the room, and we we participated in the, in the CDL uh, space stream uh, for, for a few sessions as well, and and that was what happened. We got all these space people in in, in around a table and. You can say probably to to a person, everybody there agrees on, you know, or sort of thinks that this O'Neillian future of space habitats and, you know, settlements is going to happen eventually someday. We all can kind of see it, right? But um, that, how do you get from here where there's everybody who is a customer of any space activity right now is a human being on Earth? And to this future where you've got a whole economy of people out, you know, who can, who can use things um, out in orbit. And, you know, sort of like a, a government-driven, you know, let's go colonize space kind of in initiative that might only come about in a competition between global powers, um, I think you need to have a more bootstrapped approach. And as a, you know, as a, a company and a startup, we can't count on government action. So we have to think of what's the path forward that, you know, maybe we can leverage government action where it's there, but uh, that's going to get us to this future. So what is it going to take to get to this state where that where you know in space manufacturing is commonplace? Um, I think we're starting to do it. So you need some government support. I mean, I don't think we're going to get away from the fact that, you know, we need something to underpin this marketplace in the beginning. If you look at somebody uh, companies like Made in Space, for example, they have basically proven that the at least NASA has enough interest um, in furthering in-space manufacturing to back their, their you know, current um, demonstration of, of the Arconaut, which will do in-space manufacturing on a, on a much larger scale than has ever been done, and with, with uh, you know, different materials than just like normal 3D printing plastics. Um, 
But I, I think it's going to take that in the beginning, unfortunately. I, I wish there was just a, a big marketplace of people who are chopping at the bit for in-space manufacturing. But you know, unless you have buyers in that market, and who's the user for things manufactured in space? Well, if we think about large-scale objects you know, or different missions that you can fly because you're manufacturing in space and not building on the ground and launching, um, then you know, it's the people who fly missions and who are doing things in space. And even though launch has become heavily privatized, a lot of the customers for launch are still governments. <laughs> so um, I think that for the foreseeable future, at least from our point of view, we expect support for our endeavors to come from you know, um, U.S. government entities and maybe other government entities that, that want to see these technologies develop because they see a strategic advantage for either the space programs and space exploration to having these capabilities developed, or they see a strategic, strategic advantage from a national defense perspective to knowing that, you know, our country has this ability to compete with China or whomever that also wants to develop economies in space. And I think that that competition there is actually going to help to drive things forward. I mean, the timing is totally unknown, really. I mean, I think it could be as soon as in the next decade. It could be longer than that, depending on how things unfold and how you know the global economy performs and everything. But along that path, there are, with this support, there are opportunities to start to add commercial activity. So you've got, um, for example, we've got the the efforts to privatize the space, not the space station that's existing, but build, you know, private space station modules. Those are going to start by attaching to the space station. I think I just read that Axiom got the first contract to attach to the space station. Manorax also has a proposal for building modules out of upper stages. And then, you know, the way Manorax painted the picture in, in their document, which we really agree with, is that you start with that one, then you string along you know, other outposts in the same orbit as the space station, because you've already got the infrastructure being launched to the space station. Once you get up into that orbit, moving along the orbit is actually relatively cheap. Um, so you can set up those outposts and not have a lot of expense having, you know, a space tug go from this one to this one if they're all in the same orbit. And, and that way you can move some of the activities that need to be manufactured where there's better microgravity than you can get from the space station to another complex. Maybe one of those complexes for us is um, one where you have a space foundry on one end, you have, you know, we don't start with going out and getting space debris from lots of different places, but you use the upper stages that aren't being reusable um, as the first test case, and you process some of those, and you feed them into, you know, uh, a, a made in space, and made in space uses that material to make, you know, objects that can be, like parts that can be used to assemble into, say, a satellite, it can then be launched from that space station orbit. And the more technical components are still brought up from Earth, but then you have a customer at the end of that value chain, you know, somebody who wants to launch a satellite. So you have to build up this value and then show that it's much cheaper and you have better capabilities by doing it that way than to bring it up from Earth. Um, there's also the idea that if we can come up with some materials that can only be made in microgravity, and there are definitely you know, unique environments there that, that, could, be, that could be done, Z-Bland, this uh, fiber cable that, that my main space is working on and others are working on, is one of the most you know, obvious examples of where it's actually worth it to make it up there and bring it down. Um, but we don't know what they are yet from our perspective, but we think that there will be discoveries of other materials that are worth bringing back down to Earth. And so there's also a market in the beginning, potentially, 
Um, and then there's, you know, there's even just like marketing and that sort of aside revenue streams to that, you know, like for example, they did the baking cookies in the space station and Doubletree Hotel sponsored it. What does Doubletree Hotels have to do with cookies and space? Nothing, but space is cool and, you know, it gets them some interesting exposure for their cookies, which is a, you know, a branding thing. So there's all these different ways to get it there, but the way I see it is we start with those paths. This could occur over the next, you know, one or two decades. And, um, and you've got companies like Orbit Fab that, that are building, you know, gas stations in orbit. And with the gas stations, that makes it possible to actually go to other orbital planes and go bring the space debris back to another, another location. And we start to build up that infrastructure. And the more activity that happens, the more use cases there are for building structures and bigger platforms. And then the costs come down. And, you know, it has this sort of virtuous uh, spiraling effect. And then you throw in the mix, uh, if there is a real push, if this comes to fruition, this push to the, to the, to the moon, start establishing settlements, you know, there will be obviously government funded in the beginning, especially if there's competition with China and other, other nations to get there, that could add a whole nother reason for making things in orbit because making it up there is cheaper to make to get it up there. And these same capabilities can be used on the lunar surface for sustaining those, those settlements. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it's going to take that path to get to the point where making things in space is commonplace. The other thing that people have brought to my attention that I didn't think of when I first got into this was, because I didn't know about the aerospace industry that much, um, was that people who make things in space really care about the provenance of the materials. Like mm -hmm. they really want to know that the materials they're getting are pure or high quality. And how do you verify and validate that in orbit? And so it, you can to some extent, but not to the level you're going to be able to do on Earth, right? And so there's um, what's going to take us to get to where it's commonplace, I think is going to be somewhat of a, a paradigm shift in thinking where, uh, you know, it's cheap enough, it's cheaper enough that it's worth taking the risk that maybe the materials won't be as perfect as I'm used to them being. And as people get used to that, you know, being a way to, to get materials made and used in space, then they'll become more comfortable with it. And then again, eventually it becomes commonplace. So. <laughs> Yeah, that is that is something I haven't thought of either. Um, quality assurance in space, basically. Yeah, um, hmm. it's probably a whole business around that, actually. Yep, that is something that that this company could do. Uh, interesting. I hadn't really thought about that. Well, my final question then is, um, hmm, I, I'm just reading it. And I'm like, it's kind of a gimme. I mean, how else is he going to answer it? But <laughs> but I'm curious. Okay, so we're, we're developing manufacturing and refueling capabilities on the moon that that is happening right yeah. uh, you've got artemis you've got guys like uh, dr joel Sercel talking about yeah. lunar ice mining and that kind of thing um, and that's going to impact in space efforts what you're talking about orbital you know the space foundry and and creating stuff in orbit and that is also um, going to impact in space efforts which do you think is going to be more impactful <laughs> in the near future in the near future i mean if the artemis program goes forward uh, and the schedule that that has been proposed that for sure will have a massive impact on on this stuff i mean you know as the as the proponent of my own uh, idea of course i would love to say <laughs> space foundry is going to be the most impactful <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but to be honest i think i think the big market really is is you need something that really anchors the whole activity 
and you know successfully extracting water ice from the moon or anywhere else for that matter and and bringing it to cislunar space cislunar economy um, in a deliverable fashion that can create this this fuel economy in space i think that 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 will probably power a lot of what's of what's happening um that and also just sort of the imperative to get things set up on our side versus the other side but <laughs> which you know i would love to be in a situation where we all collaborate and, and do it all together but you know i know how you know politics works and <laughs> it seems like uh having those incentives that competition can sometimes be healthy in some ways you know can drive progress right. forward so so um yeah i i actually think that the, the lunar mining is very exciting and I, you know we we Think that we can take our activities to the moon too so i want to see a diverse well-developed economy that has reason to be there and customers that exist where we want to be and then the markets are there for us to supply them with materials right that makes a lot of sense gary conlin co-founder and ceo of cis lunar industries out of denver colorado and luxembourg see that's right <laughs> listening <laughs> where can people go to find out more about you and your company yeah, so we have we have a website. It's pretty limited right now. It's basically a landing page that will change as we start to work on some of these these projects. I would say the best place to find us is you know on LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn. Um, you can find me there. You can also email me. I'm happy to engage in discussions with people who want to know more about this idea. Um, you can find me at, at G A R Y Gary at Industries com. And again, like if you ping me on LinkedIn, I'm I'm always on there. So. Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, thanks for being here, Gary. Yeah. Thanks, Jason. Appreciate being here. This is Jason Canning from Cold Star Tech. Thanks a lot for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you do want to get email notifications of upcoming episodes or episodes that have just been released and maybe a little news sprinkled in here and there, you can sign up for email notifications at coldstartech.com slash MSB. That's short for Make Space Boring. That's another little show that I do. It's uh, once, twice, three times a week, something like that. Anytime there's news or uh, an update on who I'm meeting and, and what I'm uh, studying in the space field. So you can go check that out. On the YouTube channel, I can do something that I cannot do on uh, Anchor for the audio-only uh, side of things. The YouTube channel allows me to have playlists, and so you might want to go to the channel, the Cold Star Tech channel, and check out those playlists because you will find, you can go down a rabbit hole basically into several areas like space law and policy, uh, small sats, and I think that's a lot easier than trying to scroll through 130 episodes or something like that, <laughs> looking for the thing that you want. So I recommend going and checking that out. And remember, if you're ready to take your space business to the next level or you're a VC looking for a deep and very valuable insight into a space company you're looking at investing in or investing further in, come and talk to us. Thanks for listening.